And so in 2017, Marco Rubio advocates for dramatically expanded sanctions towards Venezuela. Prior to that, we had much more narrow sanctions where they were sanctions, yes, but they were very targeted, very targeted towards the Venez- to certain Venezuelan elite that were that were making unjust uh, uh, movements in the country. So they were quite narrow. Following a recent U.S. congressional delegation to Brazil, Chile, and Colombia by representatives Greg Casa, Nidia Velasquez, Joaquin Castro, Maxwell Frost, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, media outlets are once again filled with headlines about the need for the U.S. to change its relationship with Latin America. Mother Jones ran an interview titled Replacing the Old Relationship, Representative Greg Casar on a Historic Congressional Delegation Trip to Latin America. Foreign Policy ran an analysis piece titled The American Left Realigns Its Relationship to Latin America. The delegation, organized by progressive think tank, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, or CEPR, was billed as a change of pace from other visits by U.S. lawmakers to the region. Rather than arm-twisting leaders, it was aimed at giving representatives a chance to, quote, listen and learn. They should have taken better notes. Despite the potential for this trip to replace or realign the U.S.-Latin America relationship, public comments by lawmakers following their trip, like those we heard from AOC at the beginning of this program, suggest that despite their so-called progressive credentials, Democrats are still deeply wedded to the U.S. imperialist project. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking into the bipartisan imperialist consensus in Washington when it comes to Venezuela. In 2017, Marco Rubio proposes sanctions that dramatically expand the scale of sanctions in a way that destabilizes the Venezuelan economy and impact every day the poor, the working class, middle class Venezuelans. Now, to her credit, in her interview with Daniel Denvir on the Dig podcast, AOC correctly identified U.S. sanctions as one of the key forces behind the economic challenges Venezuela is facing today, but she largely missed the mark. The only progressive position possible when it comes to the U.S.'s unilateral coercive measures is calling for the immediate lifting of the U.S.'s illegal sanctions. Instead, what AOC did was actually quite insidious. The representative from New York and the most visible member of the so-called progressive wing of lawmakers set out to whitewash Democrat complicity in the Venezuelan people's suffering. While it is true that it was Marco Rubio and Donald Trump who greatly expanded U.S. sanctions on Venezuela as part of the maximum pressure campaign aimed at ousting President Nicolás Maduro from power, what AOC conveniently leaves out is that the current effort at regime change actually began in 2015 under Obama through his infamous March 9, 2015 decree that declared that Venezuela constituted an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States. It is this same decree that has been dutifully renewed every year by U.S. presidents since. Worse still, AOC omits the fact that Trump's maximum pressure campaign 
has largely been kept in place by Joe Biden, whom AOC has endorsed for president in 2024. You might wonder, why should it matter that she hides the crimes of her fellow Democrats if she is at least talking about lifting sanctions? It is this sort of whitewashing that allowed White House official Juan Gonzalez, Biden's appointment on Latin America, to claim in a recent interview with Deutsche Welle that Biden has broken with Trump's maximum pressure strategy. That is a flat-out lie. The aim is still clearly regime change. The White House wants to see the opposition in power. Sanctions remain firmly in place, with no end in sight. U.S. policies continue to have a deadly impact on Venezuela, affecting the lives of millions of people, forcing many to leave their homes in search of opportunity elsewhere. To talk about the very real consequences of these tepid and insufficient calls by so-called progressives to merely, quote-unquote, review U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, we will speak with Hector Figarella, a Venezuelan-born activist and organizer with the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis Andreina Chavez on her recent piece titled Clear as the Full Moon, a story about the harsh circumstances Venezuela has been forced to endure at the hands of imperialism, Washington's bipartisan support for violent regime change plots, and what it means for the country with presidential elections just around the corner. Hi, Andrina. Welcome back to the program. It's always good to have you here. You recently wrote a piece titled Clear as the Full Moon about the harsh circumstances Venezuela has been forced to endure in its recent history and what it means for the revolution with the presidential elections on the horizon. You said that this piece was inspired by a visit to a bar in an area of Western Caracas with a long history of revolutionary struggle against neoliberalism and fascism. What is it about this place, this neighborhood? How did it end up inspiring this story? Hi, Jose Luis, and thank you for having me again. I think I haven't been in the podcast in a while, so I'm a little uh, out of practice. But well, to be honest, the actual inspiration for that article that I wrote for the Venezuela Analysis came from a conversation I had a few weeks ago with this delegation of foreign activists who were visiting Venezuela. It was the people from Code Pink and other organizations. I think you know them. And well, they wanted to meet with the Venezuela analysis team and ask questions about what was going on with Venezuela and the Bolivarian Revolution. So we ended up meeting in this neighborhood in Western Caracas, which is the complete opposite of East Caracas, because you know that East Caracas is often considered an opposition stronghold. In fact, you know, when we had this violent protest, opposition protest in 2017, if you travel from west to the east of Caracas, it was like going to a different country. You went from normal life, a peaceful life, peaceful activities in western Caracas to absolute violence and chaos in the east. So that's how you know these protests were conducted by a sector of the Venezuelan opposition who cared nothing about democracy or people's well-being. They just wanted to to turn the country into chaos and to take power by force and to put an end to the revolution. So, you know, I've always been amazed by how people from these popular neighborhoods in Western Caracas and across Venezuela have always been defending peace and actual democracy. So this is a memory that has stayed with me. You know how, because those of us who, there are people like me who unfortunately had to live or work in East Caracas and we had to endure months of violence because, of, because a group of people imposed that on us. So, you know, we're going back to the story about the article. The bar I mentioned in the article is in Katia, which is in Western Caracas. 
And this is a place that I think it opened in the 80s. And the owners of the place have turned this bar into some sort of museum. You know, I had never been there because I don't really go to bars. Well, it was really like taking a walk down memory lane because the moment you walk inside the bar, you can see the history of Venezuela on the walls. They have newspapers from almost every decade of the previous century. So it is an amazing place. And unsurprisingly, this place also has a lot of articles about Hugo Chavez and about, about the revolution. It has pictures of Hugo Chavez and President Nicolás Maduro. So when I was seeing these pictures, it made me remember everything that we've been through as a country, since maybe even more since Chavez passed away. And I mean, truth be told, we've been through a lot and we've resisted and overcome a lot from these violent protests I was talking about to the economic sanctions that have destroyed our country, you know, all because we have a political project that uh, a very small and elite part of the political class does not accept. And so I thought it was important to remember that, to remember why we've been holding on to this project that is called Chavismo and why it is important to point out the mistakes and challenges you know, whether President Maduro wins or loses the next presidential election so we can think about how some things need to be fixed. And, you know, nobody wants to see the, the Bolivarian project fail after all we've been through. And deep down, we all know that we might have to face the fact that the next, the next electoral process won't be easy to win because the two previous ones also were not easy to win. In the piece you mentioned that it actually was inspired by a bit of the contrasting images that you saw on the walls. Talk to us about how seeing that inspired you to talk about these issues. Yeah, it's true. I saw there was a picture of President Hugo Chavez when he was in Cuba. He was in, in his hospital bed in Cuba receiving treatment for his cancer. And there was also a picture of President Nicolás Maduro just hanging in the bar. I think he was with the owner of the bar. And so it, it was like, remember that, yeah, when Chavez passed away, it was truly a moment in our country when we were all thinking, okay, how, how do we, what do we do now? Can we really do this without Chavez? Because it seemed impossible at the time. So I think everybody, everybody assumed that, okay, we have to vote for Maduro. It wasn't that people disliked Maduro or that we didn't want to vote for him. But, you know, when you come from having a, a leader like Chavez, you really you don't see anybody. It could have been Maduro. It could have been anybody. And the same doubt, we would have had the same doubt. So at the end, I think I wanted to remember people that, indeed, when we voted for President Maduro, we did it because we wanted the Bolivarian project to continue. And we placed hope in the fact that Chavez chose someone to continue this project if he wasn't here. And of course, I personally think that he did a good choice. I think we, I think it, the fact that we're still here, it proves that he made a good choice because the revolution has continued in, in some ways, even with all the challenges that we have faced. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to remember that uh, it's not Chavez. It's not Chavez who is here with us uh, leading this process. And people to this day 
are still very uncomfortable with the idea that somebody has taken this project and has changed some things about this project and claiming that this is the original Chavista project and it is not. And so that is why I think we have seen every electoral process become sort of like a, a battle, you know, like we are voting for this only because we know that the other, the, the other, the consequence will be having these opposition people who are extremists leak the country and we cannot allow that. But we also need to understand that the way things have been so far, it hasn't been precisely what everybody thought the process would be. We thought it was going to be like a true, you know, like it was going to get more drastic, more radical, and it didn't. So, yeah, I think that's why, that's, that's why uh, I mentioned that part of the article about the two pictures. Yeah, and in fact, in the article, you talk about that night that Chavez gave a message to the Venezuelan public about choosing Nicolás Maduro as successor. You know, the first night that he actually talked publicly about possibly not being around, not being alive to lead the revolution. And I remember feeling so confident that after having very recently won the election in 2012, that Maduro filling in his shoes, running in this interim election would also readily win. But I was wrong. And as you point out in the article, the revolution would continue, but barely. Maduro wins only by two points. And so this idea that his chosen successor would be enough kind of proved to be incorrect. Fortunately, we saw the result that he was elected. Nonetheless, in that moment, after he won only by two points over Capriles, the opposition and imperialism, it seemed to me like they smelled blood. They felt like this was their opportunity. And next came the regime change plot known as the exit, led by Capriles, who was salty over his loss to Maduro, and of course, Leopoldo Lopez, a far-right political actor. And this actually would be the first of many instances during Maduro's government of the Venezuelan opposition unleashing this fascist violence, something that you mentioned that you had a close call with yourself. And then these are the people, this opposition that engages in this fascist violence, are now once again being sold to the U.S. public as democratic actors, that they're the ones who are going to bring change to Venezuela. So as we know, there's the election in 2024. It's just around the corner. How is it that U.S. policymakers keep getting away with portraying the opposition this way? And what is it about the opposition that makes it seemingly unable to move away from these extremist leaders? Yeah, I mean, precisely I was talking about the violent protests from 2017. But before that, we had violent protests in 2013 and 2014, and they were all part of the same regime change strategy. So in the article, I mentioned that in 2014, I was working in a radio station that was very Chavista and very small. We were only like four people working there, and the radio didn't have that much impact, but we still became a target for these people. And they wanted, there was a point when one of my journalists, friends and I, we went outside and we, we tried to infiltrate in one of these protests. It didn't turn out okay because obviously they realized we, were, we weren't part of the protest. And so they, they too, they threw urine at us and then they chased us all the way to the radio station 
we managed to escape, we managed to enter the radio station, but then they, they stayed there and they stayed there and they were threatening, they were going to burn the place with everyone inside. So, I mean, maybe they were bluffing, I don't know, but thankfully we didn't have time to find out. And I think this just shows that these people have a mentality to exterminate anything that is Chavismo, no matter how small it is. So, yeah, um, I think in this protest, you know, I think you remember that in this protest, a lot of people were killed. People who were not part of the protest, they were bystanders. Uh, some of these deaths were very violent with people being set on fire. You know, people were born alive. Other people died because they were unable to to leave their houses to get medical attention, you know, because every street was blocked. Um, yeah, I think it is important to remember these violent people like to pretend that this happened a long time ago. We, we shouldn't talk about it anymore. These are the same people, you know, these opposition leaders who pay for these violent demonstrations are the same ones who are campaigning now to be uh, presidential candidates in the next uh, election. These are the same people who who went to Washington to ask for sanctions against Venezuela. You know, they did that. And, they, and to this day, these anti-Chavista leaders are still asking for more sanctions against Venezuela. These are the same people who have gone to international events to ask for military intervention in Venezuela. And they even try to impose a fake government. So imagine saying that you defend democracy and then imposing a fake president that nobody voted for and using this as an excuse to use money from the Venezuelan state that was seized or frozen by Washington and using that money, money that belongs to the Venezuelan people to continue funding regime change strategies. You know, so imagine saying all that and still trying to portray yourself as someone who is defending democracy. And I truly doubt that the opposition will ever move away from this type of extremist behavior because they have the support from the U.S. government and they have the money, stolen money, to continue doing it. And so I don't think they'll ever stop. And I think it is very naive to think that maybe a figure that is considered less extremist than Maria Corina Machado uh, won't be a threat to Venezuela because Reality is that some people think that maybe some some figure who doesn't represent the the most violent side of the opposition could win, and maybe this could be a solution. But that's not true. These are all the same people. These are all the same people who have killed Venezuelans through violence or sanctions. And voting for them won't be punishment for the Maduro government. It won't be punishment for for anybody but the Venezuela people. So, you know, I always remember this phrase from Henry Kissinger. I don't remember exactly how it is, but I think it was, it was something like being the enemy of the United States is bad, but being a friend is fatal. And I think we should remember that more often. So, but back to the question, I mean, you were saying, why does Washington continue to get away with portraying the Venezuelan extremist opposition as if they were democratic actors? despite all the, evi all the evidence that says otherwise. Um, I, I mean, I think the most simple answer is that they don't care about lying. They don't care because they know they can get away with it. They control the biggest media outlets the, and they can impose the narrative that they want. And I mean, we're talking about a government, the US government. 
that supported some of the most brutal dictatorships in Latin America and openly admitted that they helped install those dictatorships and they just don't care. They are doing the same now with Palestina, for example, Palestine. They know they are promoting and funding the genocide of the Palestinian people, but they keep portraying this as a conflict between two sides, and we know that's not the case. So, yeah, I think it's simply a matter of they, they like to lie and they don't care about it. Absolutely. And I think part of the blame lies with the so-called progressives in the U.S. political system. In our next segment, we're going to talk about this interview that AOC did where on the one hand, yes, she mentions sanctions against Venezuela. She signals the need for that to change, but there isn't that clear condemnation. You know, there isn't this sense that these are not democratic actors. These people do not deserve even an ounce of support. They are responsible for great amounts of violence. They are responsible for the exodus that we're seeing from Venezuela. They're responsible for the situation that the country is in today, for the most part. And yet, we don't see that kind of criticism. And I think that also helps to contribute to this situation where the U.S. public is able to believe, is able to be convinced that these are democratic actors. But that's the situation on the one hand. And I think we've done a good job of sort of highlighting the issues with the Venezuelan opposition. But your piece also talks a little bit about the need for some self-criticism, that the left needs to also ask itself some difficult questions. As we know, the election's coming around, the circumstances are different. There is the risk that the candidate of the revolution could lose. So you actually float the need for the Bolivarian process to allow for these critical voices to express their displeasure. And in fact, you even say that perhaps they should hold a primary to select the candidate, that maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be Maduro, or maybe Maduro would ultimately come out of this primary process as a candidate. So in the context of these upcoming elections, these unrelenting sanctions, this extremist opposition, what are some of the steps you think that the government could take to shore up its unity ahead of its crucial vote, which we know is going to be a watershed moment for Venezuela? Yeah, you know, I think holding a primary to select a candidate will feel like, like giving a vote of confidence to the Chavista people, you know? It will be like saying, we trust that you have something to say and we would like you to decide what's best for you. We would like you to tell us uh, who do you think should be able to lead this project from now on? Because I think that it's important to make people feel like they, like they have control, right? that, because people have something to say. And I think if people, if we hold a primary and people vote for Maduro, I mean, I think that that sends a message. If people don't, if the people vote for another, another candidate, I think that also sends uh, an important message. And it gives people this idea that, yeah, I mean, Maduro was the person who, who we were uh, told we, we could trust in a specific time, you know, 2012, 2013. And maybe it is time to decide for ourselves who we think is the right person to continue. And it could be, it could be President Maduro, but it is important to give people the idea that they have control, that they can decide this time. And, you know, and saying this outside the actual electoral process, because we don't want people to make that choice when we are voting against the opposition. We want them to make that choice between us first. 
you know, so we can so we can have more power, more 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 confidence when we are facing the whoever are the opposition candidates that go for the election in 2024. So of course, I think a primary probably won't happen. But I think it is something that, in general, I think it is something that we should talk more often within the left in Latin America. You know, I think it is something that oftentimes we we take for granted. Like, and I don't see many primaries being held in other countries either. So, at least from the left. And yeah, I think in the case of the Venezuelan government, uh, the best way for them to guarantee that people unite even more behind this political project, that is Chavismo and Bolivarianismo, is to allow more debates on every level, you know, debates in the streets, in neighborhoods, inside the Socialist Party, and, and between the Socialist Party and other leftist political organizations, but especially to Ignite debates with workers and students and women organizations. I think, you know, this debate should not be about pledging loyalty to the government or pledging loyalty to Chavismo. I think they should be about discussing the good, the bad, and even the ugly. It is time to recognize that that as as a government, we have made some mistakes and that people need to have things to say about the economic policies. They have thing to say is about the the ideological deviations that we've seen in recent years. And I think I think for the most part, people are not as upset about some of these changes as they are about the fact that nobody seems to listen to them, you know? I think if you just give people the chance to express how they feel about certain things, how they how they have been done. I think it will give people some peace of mind, you know, because they will feel like at least they are open to listen to other voices and to make changes and to make rectifications. So that's my advice. The government should simply allow people to say all the the difficult things that they may not want to hear and they need to listen to those things and try to make changes. And I think we should also be clear, right? The Venezuelan people, you know what's at stake, that there is a real risk of the opposition possibly winning in these elections. And I don't think that the Chavistas of Venezuela, the revolutionaries of Venezuela, the left in general, is interested in actually letting that happen. So hopefully we can see a deepening of the revolutionary process. We can see a deepening of its own democratic structures and that that does facilitate, as you say here, the building of unity, which is going to be crucial ahead of this 2024 vote, and also in the face of the challenges that continue to come from Washington, from both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans alike. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrina. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Esa es también una un cambio muy importante y definitivo en la política nuestra de la de la administración previa, que ellos. Uh, pensaron que una política de presión máxima iba a llevar a, a cambio de régimen, porque la política nuestra hemos dejado muy claro es es una ruta electoral, no es cambio de régimen. In our next segment, we will speak with Héctor Figarella from the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee about his group's efforts to inform and mobilize the U.S. population on the consequences of U.S. foreign policy, as well as their lobbying efforts to get sanctions lifted. Hi, Héctor. 
Thanks so much for being with us here on the program. And we're talking about U.S. foreign policy towards Venezuela. After a recent trip where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other Democratic lawmakers went to Brazil, Chile, and Colombia, AOC went on the DIG podcast to talk about the U.S. relationship with the region, and in particular, its relationship with left-wing governments in Latin America. And actually, to my surprise, she talked about U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, something that we often don't hear about from policymakers in the U.S. But nonetheless, her responses left me feeling very disappointed. She seemed to want to blame the impact on sanctions solely on Marco Rubio and Donald Trump, that is to say, the past Republican administration, but failed to acknowledge that Joe Biden has largely kept the same sanctions regime in place. And instead of calling for lifting sanctions, she said the U.S. should merely, quote unquote, address sanctions. Now, the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee has had been heavily involved in efforts to pressure Representative Jim McGovern to keep the pressure on the White House to lift sanctions. Can you talk about, about this effort to engage with McGovern? Why do you think it's so hard for Democrats, even so-called progressives, even those who talk about sanctions, to stray from this bipartisan imperialist consensus, especially when it comes to Venezuela? Yeah, our efforts to engage uh, Congress, Congressman McGovern have been ongoing since 2019. It has been a challenge to get him to acknowledge the deadly consequences of the sanctions. He has backpedaled a little bit in recent in recent months, and then most recently he had, he, he gave a brief speech on the House floor about how, you know how it is important to uh, lift the sanctions on Venezuela and how they're causing great harm. So he, he gets the issue. He understands that the sanctions are not, as, they, as they're being applied right now, as blanketed sanctions are causing great harm to the Venezuelan people and many other people around the world. We have, the United States has about over 50 countries that are sanctioned right now. So the efforts have been uh, challenging, to say the least. Uh, it has been, it has been a combination of uh, engaging him on the ground, showing up at his office unannounced, having rallies outside his office. So making him feel the pressure uh, from his constituents and he, that has worked to a certain extent. But what's disappointing is that it hasn't been enough. Uh, the sanctions are still in place. People are still suffering greatly in Venezuela. I, I believe that it is hard for so-called progressives to, to stray from the bipartisan imperialist consensus because uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a politically sensitive issue, especially when it comes to Venezuela. Maduro took power after Hugo Chavez passed away in 2013. And ever since uh, the narrative from the mainstream media in the U.S., those who control the narrative that push the capitalist imperialist agenda has been that Maduro is a strong armed man, who's a dictator, who, uh, is, whose administration is mired in human rights abuses. So all of these things, all of this uh, false narrative that has been being pushed against the Venezuelan government are things are one of the reasons why by so-called progressives are staying away from this issue. They don't want to be associated by by because uh, by asking for the lifting of sanctions or easing of sanctions that they're somehow supporting the Maduro the Maduro government and anybody that gets that you know that is even equated or associated with supporting the Maduro government is equal. It, it will be someone who will be 
label um, is you know support supported of, of, of communism or socialism in Latin America. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a topic that many so-called progressives just don't want to touch uh, because of that reason. There might be other reasons. There might be indifference. They just don't care. Uh, they they are they're so-called progressives, but at the bottom line is uh, a lot. You know, uh, for the most part, they're they support the U.S. pro-imperialist agenda of um, you know going back to the Monroe Doctrine of over two hundred years or two hundred years ago, where you know it is the intent of the United States to to rule over Latin America because it is the United States' backyard, and they it's this this sense of white supremacy ownership over uh, the people of Latin America is is quite is quite uh, sobering. Uh, to be aware of that and to keep that in mind as we move forward and continue to push back and raise the voice that sanctions are a tool of war. They are a tool of war. It's a hybrid war that is taking place against the people of Venezuela that has caused countless deaths. And now, it's, it, now it's, we're seeing it at the southern border of the U.S. where we have hundreds of thousands of Venezuelan migrants just fleeing Venezuela because conditions on the ground are so desperate on many different levels from health, uh, healthcare to, to food access. Food access has, has been a huge part of it, but yeah, so-called, so-called progressives. Yeah. So-called progressives. They're not that progressive. They're, they're more concerned about their political careers than what really matters. Now you talked about the harm of sanctions. And you said it should be understood as a war. It should be understood as a hybrid war. You know, some of the language we use at Venezuela Analysis is that it's a war without bombs. And indeed, we've spoken previously in other episodes for the podcast about how your family has been directly impacted by the effects of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and on the website for normal articles detailing these impacts. But I wanted to ask you, why do you think it's so tough to get the U.S. public to even think about foreign policy? You know, I understand there's certain limits about the political discourse in the U.S., but do you think there's even an appreciation about the deadly consequences of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela? I think, I think that for the most part, there's a misconception from oh, that people have, that regular people have. I think people in the U.S. for the most part generally care about other people. But I I, th- I I feel like when it comes to the issue of sanctions, for example, it, um, there's very little understanding of their impact, of their daily impact. That is a form of warfare. The United States can no longer you know, invade. I mean, they have done it. They did it with Libya. But when it comes to Latin America, the days of putting boots on the ground like they did in Panama uh, are, no longer, are no longer feasible. So they have resorted to to another deadly tool that's a silence, a silent weapon. Silent in the in the form that is, is you're not dropping bombs, but you are killing people indiscriminately. You are causing great harm. You're 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 killing people on a daily basis. You're robbing people of their future or their humanity. And and that's what sanctions do. Sanctions are a form of warfare. Venezuela went from the fastest growing economy during the Chavez years in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, fastest growing economy 
to an economy that was completely devastated and destroyed. And now, and now we're seeing that the effects are continuing. People like just listening for people from people on the ground that are that are that are suffering is, is daily impacts, and people are leaving. And it's hard to afford food. It's hard to afford medicine. Um, I think the those who control the narrative here in the U.S. Um, unfortunately, are those who who have ties to the military-industrial complex. And as a capitalist imperialist nation that, that depends on war to fuel its economy, you're always looking for the next conflict. But you also, you also need to control the narrative. And the, the opposition, those, the ruling class in, this, in the United States has done a very good job of controlling the narrative of who is a bad guy versus who is the good guy. Venezuela has gone through a tremendous process since the since the beginning of the Chavez administration, Trans transformational process, and it's quite remarkable to see what they have accomplished, even under such incredible pressure uh, and under such deadly sanctions. And I think I think those who control the narrative are, are doing a good job at that. So for us, organizing. On the ground here in the U.S. in the belly of the beast is it's a great challenge to break through those barriers, and doing it at a local level has been has been challenging as well. And but it's but we have no other options. We have to continue. We need to continue to engage our representatives in Congress. Uh, Jim McGovern has you know is willing to engage and has done a couple of things, but these these things are not they're just not good enough. Uh, he is in a position to do more, and we're pushing him in that direction. And we're hoping to that he that he'll that he'll grow into his skin and actually do what's right for the Venezuelan people and other countries um, that are under uh, just take the cruelty of the sanctions. They're they're cruel. They're inhumane. And I think I think spaces like this where you get to talk about uh, what is really going on, what U.S. imperialism is really doing and its deadly consequences. It's a way to, to fight back against the, the main narrative from those in power, those who control capital, and push for U.S. capitalist imperialist agenda. Yeah, that actually brings me to my next question. One of the things that struck me about AOC's recent interview is the whitewashing of U.S. policy. She insisted on calling it, quote unquote, interventionism. Now, I'm not trying to be difficult or nitpick about words, but I think this refusal to correctly identify U.S. imperialism for what it is speaks to just how limited the discourse is in the U.S. and how that actually limits the space for activists like yourself and those with the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee to actually do their work. So I wanted to ask you, how do you strike a balance between mobilizing people to oppose U.S. imperialism on an anti-imperialist basis, while also this work of lobbying and officials like McGovern, of mobilizing people like this recent delegation that went to Latin America via these normal political challenges? How do you establish that balance? It's, 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 it was quite sobering listening to AOC's interview and calling calling U.S. imperialism interventionism. It, it really speaks value to the monumental task that we, that we face ahead of us. 
um, the even a so-called progressive who paints herself as somebody you know who who is the darling of the of the liberal left uh, can't even call U.S. imperialism for what it is truth you know it's not it's not interventionism it's, it's imperialism it's disrupted uh, cruel behavior that gets in the way of peoples around the world in the case of Venezuela of pursuing their own path they want sovereignty they want the freedom to choose their own path and that's what the Venezuelan people is doing and they're being punished for that also in the case of Cuba they're being punished for following their path of self-determination striking that balance has been has been has been something that we're we're mindful but we're also not shy about what we stand for and we we stand for an anti-imperialist agenda and when we meet with Representative McGovern, we we are very clear about our objectives of letting the world know what U.S. imperialism is doing, and we're very you know we're very clear about what this represents, what U.S. imperialism represents, and what it's doing to the world, and how much how much harm is causing has caused centuries centuries of uh, interventionism as they call it of of warfare. Um, is is something that we need to we need to let people know what's really happening. Most people are not aware of to the extent the negative impact of U.S. imperialism and what it's doing to to the third world. So we, you know, striking that balance uh, is is something that um, we we simply we simply wear our hearts on our sleeve. This is what we're doing. U.S. foreign policy is an imperialist policy that's based on a capitalist, you know, agenda, and it's causing harm. It's killing people, and we're here to ask you when we when we when we meet with our leaders, our, our elected officials, we're here to ask you to do something about it, to speak up against it. Unfortunately, a lot of elected officials, even the so-called progressives, are are officials that that support U.S. imperialist policy. They won't say, they won't come out and say it for what it is, but they both, they both are a bloated military budget every year after year after year. And they support regimes that oppress peoples around the world. So I think the balance for me is, is, being, is being honest with them because... After 200 plus years of the Monroe, you know, 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine, I feel like we need to engage people. We need to let our officials know, our elected officials know what they you know, what U.S. imperialism is doing, and 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 call them out on it. Like, what's their stand on it? We've we've been calling Congressman McGovern out on what what uh, what's his stand on U.S. imperialism in the case of Venezuela and the sanctions. So it's it's been taking a lot of work. I think I think we made some progress over the past few years, but there's so much work to be done. So I personally feel I know there there's there's a balance to be that that needs to that take place. But for me, it's more about being honest, open, and you have to walk a, you know a balance. But at the same time, we need to be honest with them. We need to be honest with ourselves and what we're trying to do and what's happening. People are dying. People are dying every day. People are leaving their homes. Nobody wants to leave their homes in search of a better life. So 
in in this in this case, I think that honesty is the best is the best solution, the best course, I guess. Honesty is the best course, and and just bearing out the truth of U.S. imperialism, just out in the open. It's just out in the open. This is what U.S. imperialism is doing to people around the world, and I think representative officials need to know this. They need to hear that. You need to hear that from their constituents, and their constituents need to hear that from us, those on the ground doing the work of airing out the U.S. imperialist dirty laundry and for what it is and what it's doing, just just being honest with it. I really like the word you used, monumental. It is indeed a monumental task, but it's also a necessary one. And one that I do think that if we keep politicians' feet to the fire, if we keep doing the work like the action, Anti-Imperialist Action Committee is doing, that we will be able to see in advance on this issue. I want to invite our readers also to check out How U.S. Sanctions Are a Tool of War, The Case of Venezuela, which is written by Celina de la Croce, who's also a supporter of the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee, which details a bit about the impacts, these deadly impacts of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Thank you so much for being with us, Hector. And I don't know if you want to add anything else before we leave today. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you, Jose Luis. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, to your listeners. And... I encourage people to learn to learn more about what's going on with Venezuela in, in, in the issue of sanctions. You can follow us on Instagram at Anti Imperialist Action Committee. Uh, we are, you know, we're constantly uh, letting people know what we're doing and, and on the ground doing the work and pushing for the sanctions to be lifted. So thank you again for for the time and opportunity to be here. You know, thank you so much for being with us. And for other listeners who maybe are not close to where they're doing their work, feel free to take inspiration from them and and do this kind of anti-imperialist organizing in your community. Put pressure on these representatives because ultimately the number one demand of the Venezuelan people, of the Venezuelan government, is the lifting of sanctions against the country so it can prosper. I want to thank you again. We've been speaking with Hector Figuerella from the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee. As critical as we should be of the weak positions seen by U.S. lawmakers following their trip to the region, we still have to laud Sieper for their efforts in organizing the delegation and thank those who attended. Reading comments from people like Greg Kassar, it is evident that the trip did impact him. In his interview with Mother Jones, he said, quote, If we want to build a new relationship going forward in Latin America, we need to acknowledge our recent history and our recent past. We were deeply wrong. End quote. This sort of comment represents an important step forward. But the hope is that U.S. policymakers realize that those same historical crimes they're ashamed of having been committed by the U.S. against the Chilean people are being carried out today, right now, against the Venezuelan people. It is high time that progressives stop whitewashing the role of Democrats in bringing untold suffering to millions of people for daring to elect a counter-hegemonic leader, for wanting to assert their sovereignty and pursue an independent path. If so-called progressives are worth their salt, They should call U.S. policy in the region what it is, imperialism, and commit to joining the millions of anti-imperialists throughout Latin America in their efforts to bury U.S. imperialism. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out our Dispatch, Burying the Monroe Doctrine, and Episode 13, Solidarity versus Sanctions. Be sure to visit us at VenezuelaAnalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. 
We'll end today's episode with the song Canción para los Valientes by Ali Primera. Ya no sople el viento arriba bajo de la cordillera Azorrazando en Santiago calentando las trincheras Canción de huesos chilenos de lo profundo de adentro Canción para los valientes que la cante Víctor Jara una canción de violeta para el compañero Allende La montaña quedó muda partida por la mitad No canta pabellón Neruda los versos del general Porque era mucho poeta para ver morir su pueblo Y sobrevivir al hecho por defender una cruz casi no han cambiado nada siguen matando cristianos por defender una cruz en el pecho cruz gamada Se alza la llamará, dispara, dispara, chileno dispara, 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 por América dispara, toma tus manos, toma tus dedos, te las devuelve la galla, cántale Víctor, cántale al pueblo que se alza la llamará, dispara.
no sople el viento arriba, bajo de la cordillera. Porque el viento es frío arriba y el bajando se calienta. Azorrazando el Santiago, calentando las trincheras, a su caso en la moneda. Canción de huesos chilenos, de lo profundo de adentro, canción para los valientes, que la cante Víctor Jara, una canción de violeta. Nuestro continente hable con vos de pueblo unido, allende, 